Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. It's your host Adam Sood, and look who we got in the studio today. <laughs> Don't be too excited now. I was here last time, you know. <laughs> yeah, but last time doesn't count. That wasn't that wasn't exactly a Conspiracy Normal. <laughs> that reminds that was me. us going on uh, Rocky's Everything But Normal. Uh, oh show. yeah, true. That's true. Well, where where is Rob anyway, dude? Rob is in Delaware at the moment. What's in he's, Delaware? <laughs> he's working a uh, festival. Oh, oh. He works, you know, he works for like a, uh, like a music company here in town and he, uh, he runs, helps like, basically it's like he gets like, uh, equipment and puts it out on stage and would tests love sounds. That. She would love me to do some kinds, like kinds of stuff like that that he does. Um, so he's, that's where he's, that's where he's been. He was there. Word. He was at Bonnaroo a couple of weeks ago, and now he's in Delaware. And I think he's got like two festivals he's going to be working in Delaware. Were you at Rue, man? Were you there? <laughs> if you weren't there, you're square. Did you go to Rue? Did you go to the Rue, Luke? No, dude. <laughs> you know, like I just, I was on my way there, and I just got lost, and I gave up and came back home. Yeah. And I also didn't have $300. Dude, stand on the side of the road with a cardboard sign that says, Take me to Rue, Take me to Rue, please. That only works for <laughs> so hot I get chicks. So I can get some drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I had a sign that said, uh, I have shrooms and acid, like someone would right. pick me up in like it, five minutes. And hot chicks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, very interesting week last week uh, with this uh, shooting in Charleston. And I kind of wanted to talk about it just a little bit before we went to our good, our guest, uh, R.J. Von Bruning. We're going to talk about the uh, forbidden knowledge of Enoch tonight. Oh, that, that was, that's right. Remember we discussed I wanted to have a fancy name like him since he gets to have such a cool name. Right. Um, well, you just you got to come up with like your Germanic style of name. Well, for, yeah, I already did. From now on, it? from now on, I'm Lucas Adolf 
Von der Schleißen. <laughs> Lucas Adolf Von der Schleißen? Yeah. That's I don't it. know if you really want the name Adolf. Well, I, I said, said we're, we're going to talk I, about I said, here. I said uh, Adolf, but like Ad- Adolf will work. Adolf. Adolf, like E D O L F? Yeah. Adolf. <laughs> Lucas Adolf von der Slicen. Von von der Slicen. Sounds like, like a member of Kraftwerk or something like that. Sweet. <laughs> we are the robots. Bow, 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 bow. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, I'm sure everybody knows by now that there was a shooting in Charleston, South Carolina on Wednesday night. Uh, this, uh, well, I'm going to say kid because the guy was like, what, 21 years old? Walked into the oldest african-american church in the country in south carolina the church is i think incorporated like 1816 so it's nearly like 200 years old at this point went in apparently sat down at a wednesday night bible study sat there for an hour and then opened fire on the people at the bible study and killed i think about like was it eight people yeah including a south carolina state senator which was also a pastor at the church and uh, left one of the people alive in order to tell what happened and apparently uh he was caught in north carolina i think like the next day i think like the, the next morning which was thursday morning and you just told me and i just found out by looking at the internet looking at the internet uh one of our one of our local stations here in Nashville, that he was on his way to Nashville. And yet to kind of determine why or what the reason was he was he was going to Nashville for, uh, which was interesting. Apparently he said that he was asked when he was going to Nashville, he reportedly told investigators, I've never been there before. Are there any historic black churches around here? Oh, I'm sure there are. <laughs> I mean, we're, That's not we're, a fairly, we're a fairly decently old city, but... Well, no, I mean, actually, it's a good point, because if he was going on some kind of rampage, yeah, he could have... Uh, Keep fulfilling his... Uh, that's, what he, that's what he could have been doing. It's very possible. Yeah. Although, you know, the guy did did give up to the cops. Uh, I've, seen, <laughs> I've seen a lot of memes lately in the last few days. People kind of tried to process this on Facebook and stuff. Uh, and people were saying that, uh, why did he... Apparently, there's pictures of him in his bulletproof vest being protected by the cops, which, as you know, anytime someone is arrested, that's what they do. They generally protect the people that are in their custody. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of being, they have to have being a, a policeman. Trial. Yeah. yeah, and people were wondering how that... Uh, some people were making the point that this is how the white shooter is... Uh, the guy that kills eight people was treated as opposed... To, and they showed a picture of what the guy that was in... Uh, the black guy that was strangled to death by the cops in New- in New York City for selling cigarettes. They showed that picture, you know, this these kind of memes like this. Um, but what's happened now is that you're seeing all the stuff coming on the internet, man. Like all the all the stuff on Facebook that I've seen, all the stuff on YouTube about how this is a false flag shooting and how. This has been set up by the government. And, you know, I listened to Alex Jones briefly the next day, which is Thursday morning. I listened to him and he said he didn't think that this was, that this was set up. Well, apparently, like, in the last few days, he changed his tune on it and is now saying that it's a false flag. Of course, man, that gets more listeners. Yeah. And, you know, 
one of the things that supposedly people are saying is because there's these pictures of this kid with a jacket on, and he apparently has the flags, uh, well, the old flag of South Africa, and which was the apartheid era South Africa, and the flag of Rhodesia, which is a white-dominated state, what's now Zimbabwe. And apparently he had a website or something, or, or a blog called The Last Rhodesian, or something like that. And so he has these, he has these flags uh, sewn into, onto this jacket. And there's people that are on the internet, and they're saying that this is, uh, that that's a, a photoshopped picture. Which I'm sure it's easy to Photoshop a picture. It is. It's extremely. Speaking from a graphic designer's perspective, it only takes about like 30 minutes to an hour. But it, this seems to me pretty cut and dry, man. Uh, you know, we've talked about other shootings in the past. And we've talked about Sandy Hook. We've talked about uh, what happened out in California with the Elliot Rogers shooting and how suspicious I am of both of those shootings and how I think there's something up with those. Um First of all, this kid gave up. He didn't try to kill himself. He didn't succeed. And he, and if he tried to, he didn't definitely didn't succeed in kill, trying to kill himself. Apparently, I think he just gave up to the police. I don't think there was any kind of struggle. They got him and they took him in. Uh, so nothing odd there. Nothing strange. Uh, the shooter isn't dead. And uh, second of all. There's all these pictures and all this testimony from family friends that people that he knew that he had been planning something like this for a long time, but just no one had taken him seriously. And there's lots of other pictures of him. Like supposedly there's a picture of him with a uh, sand sitting at the beach and he's got 1488 uh, etched into the sand. The Aryan nation. Yeah. Uh... But you actually kind of looked into that too, so you can explain what that means, dude. I don't remember. I, oh, I read. Come on, no, man. I read it. Okay, I read it one time. I, I have to look it up again. Well, it's apparently it's like it's these four. Uh, it's supposedly these fourteen words from oh, Mind Comp right. from an eighty-eight word passage. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then it also has something to do with uh, this guy that was in the eighties of a group, a white supremacist group called the Order. That uh, they actually assassinated a disc jockey in Denver, Colorado. That's what they were most na- known for. And the '88s just Heil Hitler, just like, yeah, high Heil Hitler. Because that the eighth but it also means it also means something like th- those fourteen words are from an '88 line passage in something about when you we need to protect the white race and all this kind of thing like that. I'll look it up and uh, in the outro we'll maybe see. Yeah, what see, that, I, see what I don't that's know how you retain about. stuff like that. I looked well, it up I just one reta- time. I just retain everything, my friend. Yeah, that's, awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, <laughs> thank I, you. Wish I could do that. But just to me, this just seems pretty cut and dry. And I think that our guest tonight actually has a different opinion on it, so we'll have to ask him about it. Uh, but uh, I'd like to know what he thinks because I've seen some posts on Facebook from him that uh, he thinks that it may be a false flag event. And I'm always leery to even say something is a false flag event. But, you know, like I said, you know, the Boston bombing, the Sandy Hook, uh, Elliot Roger shooting in California last year. Uh, those are suspicious to me. This This just isn't. This kid was a white supremacist. Probably a wannabe. He walked into this church with something to prove, and he did what he did. And he knew what he wanted to do. And he was a, that was his, 
this whole idea to spark a race war in this country. And, you know, with everything that's been going on, you know, the last uh, last week we talked about this McKinney pool party thing uh, with Rocky a little bit. And we talked about, uh, we, we've talked about some other things that have happened in this country, um, like Ferguson last year and other events that, it, other events that have been happening. And, uh, you know, you can see this stuff all over the media. So it, it's no surprise to me that somebody at some point was going to do something like this. Uh, I don't think it's a false flag to take away our guns like everybody else has been saying. Uh. But you definitely see the gun control aspect coming out in this, too. Yeah. People talking. Anytime there is something like this, our some of our politicians get out and they want to talk about gun control. But really what we probably need to be talking about is kind of like race relations in this country as well. But not even, not even just that. You know, police brutality, too. So to me, it just it's, it's pretty cut and dry. It's just the kind of the typical white supremacist uh, act, terrorism, and it is terrorism. There's a lot of people that have said that they don't want to call it terrorism, but, you know, call it what it is. I mean, that's yep. that's what it is. Somebody goes into a church and kills people, that's that's a terrorist act. Well, we're going to be talking about that subject, so we'll leave that maybe for the outro, but uh, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal with R.J. Von Bruning. All right, we're back on Conspira Normal, and uh, you know who this is, your old trusty host. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it's, uh, Lucas Idoff von der Slicen. Yeah, von der Slicen, yep. <laughs> and we have uh, Mr. R.J. Von Bruning on the line, and we're going to talk tonight about a very fascinating book that he has written called The Forbidden Knowledge of Enoch. And the whole Book of Enoch thing is something that we've talked about a lot on this show, but I think that uh, Mr. Von Bruning has a very interesting interpretation of the Book of Enoch, and specifically one passage within the Book of Enoch. So I kind of wanted to get him on to kind of talk about that, and we'll kind of go over some other things, too, that uh, that, that he's interested in. Uh, but uh, welcome to Conspire Normal, RJ. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, I just kind of want to go over, first of all, who you are, uh, like, kind of like your background, and how you kind of became interested in the subject of the uh, Book of Enoch. Well, I've always had an interest in secret societies, UFOs, strange phenomenon, and just unexplained mysteries. And for my family, myself is what really kind of got me interested in the Book of Enoch and specifically the esoteric or secret societies, as most people know them. Um, my family had a big, long historical history with basically the Masons. And that information was basically kept for me when I was growing up. And that just kind of made it irresistible. Right. And made me incredibly curious about it. And that's always been kind of the spark behind it all. Kind of like a like a just a overwhelming curiosity to know exactly what's going on. Pretty much, um, I 
I also grew up in southeastern Arizona um, and, you know, being surrounded with all the different Indian legends and, yeah. you know, you're close to the Mexican border. So there's always a big uh, Aztec influence. You always hear about the Mayans. And then there's just tons of UFO sightings. And then the ever famous Roswell's just one state over. So, you know, it's kind of in the culture. Right. Uh, what got you interested in kind of like the Book of Enoch, though, specifically? Uh, the truth is, is about five years ago, I managed to get my hand on a copy. I've always heard about this book. It always seems to come up in paranormal and ancient astronauts and just was always hearing about this book. And I finally got a copy of it and had the time to sit down and actually read it. And when I did, it just kind of blew my mind. And the one piece that I focused on the most was the dream vision, which is the fourth book in the book of Enoch. Yeah. What's a, what exactly is the dream vision in the book of Enoch? What does that, uh, what does that entail? The dream vision is a very unique little story. It is agreed by all theologians, experts, and lay people that it is an allegorical story or a symbolic story of the biblical story or the history of Israel that is told with animals to represent people and men representing angels. Okay. But you have kind of a different take on exactly what is going on there in that story. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> the big key in the story is the symbolism. The yeah. uh, first step is understanding that the different groups of people that are represented by animals is kind of the key to unlocking a lot of the symbolism that's still around us today. And that's kind of the other part that got me very interested in it is looking around us every day. I mean, we always see the pyramid and the on the back of the dollar bill, but we also see a whole host of other symbols on everything we see around us. And I've always been really curious on why they're there and what do they mean? Well, let's kind of go over some of those symbols. Um, this is, this is real interesting stuff. I've actually got it on that page where you talk about kind of the symbols and there's, uh, there's, you list 13 of them. Uh, yes. There are much more than that. I just, pick those to go with what's well, kind of the main ones is the flaming torch the caduceus which is the two serpents coiling around the staff which you see in like the medical profession yeah uh the wing sun disc or the solar disc uh two stone columns and you say many times with one broken in half or three stone columns normally with the sitter one higher or larger than the others the lightning bolt the phoenix the owl which is something that uh, has come up on this show many times. We've talked about owls a lot for some weird, weird reason. The sun, the moon, what normally a crescent moon, the five-pointed star, which is the pentagram, the six-pointed six star or the hexagram, which is also like the Star of David, and the pyramid, the all-seeing eye, the, the classic one on the back of the dollar bill. You found bill. all that on money? No, no, no actually, on, on everything, anything. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, that out of the general symbols that we see around us all the time, I only pick these 13 because, like Adam was just saying, they're basically the primary ones that you use to unlock the rest of the story. Yeah. So what's kind of the 
I, I love kind of like your idea, like the significance of the owl. Uh, do you have like any insight into how that's used just to kind of a, just like as a curiosity? Cause I know that's used like in the, uh, Bohemian Grove, uh, they have the big owl and, uh, owls have actually come up to like, you have the, uh, alien abduction, kind of like the screen memories, supposedly of people seeing owls. So I find that very fascinating. Yeah. Owls are some of the oldest symbolism in many cultures all around the planet. Typically, they are viewed as some type of wisdom, and that wisdom is typically comes from the gods. Uh, Greek mythology, they're viewed more as a messenger, much like how the Native Americans would view the crow as a messenger from the gods. And that's one of the key things in, in my point in all this is that connection, that that idea that that symbol is connected to the gods or as a messenger or related to them. Okay. Yeah, I know there's some other, uh, like the the focus with uh, the association with the goddess Athena, uh, I believe uh, the association with the goddess Hecate as well, that they're associated with. And and the, the phoenix as well. I mean, that's, of course, that's the... Uh, death and rebirth. Uh, how does that work into some of this esoteric philosophy? The esoterics always, one of the key features of the esoteric, um, and a lot of people don't know this, is they have a central belief that you have an immortal soul and there is always a resurrection. And they typically use the phoenix to symbolize the resurrection of the body or the soul. It depends on which branch that you're in. Uh, some believe are, are like Christians and believe in a spiritual resurrection. And then there are some that have older pagan beliefs and believe in a more physical bodily resurrection, which I want, I'm still trying to distinguish between the two and why they developed. Yeah. The caduceus is also interesting as well. Uh, you know, normally you, like I said, you associate that with the uh, with the medical profession, but some of the what's some of the other uh, associations with that? Uh, the truth is that it shouldn't be used for medicine. It is not yeah. the traditional symbol or historical symbol for uh, medicine. It is actually the staff of the gods with usually Hermes or Apollo being the most common having this. Uh, it is always represented and used as some type of communication device or some very powerful wand. Um, there are even a few researchers that suspect that the idea of where we have like in magic stories and wizards with magic wands actually have their origin coming from the Caduceus itself. So there, there's always this magical power associated with it. Right. It's very interesting too with the uh, the two different stars. The, you have the pentagram and the hexagram, and of course, you know normally we associate the pentagram with uh, with you know either like the 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 upright or the inverted version, right? The good and the evil kind of version, and then also you know the hexagram normally is what you see with like the Star of David. Uh, you know, what's kind of like the significance there with those those symbols? Um, the pentagram is very significant, just like you had pointed out in the occult, depending on its orientation, uh, whether it's a good symbol or an evil symbol. 
the way I view it is more the way the esoterics view it as what it really is. It's actually a geometric figure. It's just like a triangle or a square. It's actually geometry. And this big secret about the symbol is, is that it contains the golden ratio within it. And then once that's combined with just simple algebra and fractions, you basically get most of mathematics up to trigonometry out of it, all oh, from wow. being hidden in one symbol. It's just like using a circle. And once you understand that the circle represents pi and you know pi, you can do all kinds of mathematics off of it. The pentagram is essentially the same way. It also has a lot of other meanings, the typical occult meaning that it represents uh, in the case, what I use it in, and Enoch uses it, is it represents the star that fell from heaven, which in the Judeo-Christian tradition is typically Lucifer and his fallen angels. But this right. is also the same story of Zeus defeating the Titans and coming to Earth, or Ra coming to Earth. This is one of the big, important pieces that's part of the esoteric, and people get really confused, is that's a central part of the whole story is the star falling from heaven and bringing knowledge and information to humanity. Okay. Well, the dream vision of Enoch, uh, what are some of the animals there that are involved and what do you think the people groups are that they represent? Well, in the book, I used the traditional breakdown that was done by one of the original people who decipher or translated the book of Enoch, which was an R.H. Charles back in 1917. And he okay. broke the animals down. And, and it's pretty simple. If you go and you read it, it's really simple to understand. It starts out where Enoch talks where he sees a, a great white bull come from the earth. And then he sees a heifer and then he sees a black bull and then a red bull. And, it's very clear and easy once you read the first little paragraph that that's talking about Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel stories. The other breakdowns are is that it also refers to elephants, which are typically viewed as the giants. Uh, the camels that it speaks of in the beginning are usually the Nephrim. Um, the, the black bull that comes later after there's a flood story in there. Uh, where the bulls become representative of Noah's sons. And then there's kind of spread through to where the black bulls uh, are um, the uh, nation of Edom out of the Bible. Um, the wolves are usually the Egyptians, and that's where it's kind of strange because in the Ethiopic, it's they're recorded as bears. Okay. So there there are some little variations and some some scholarly debate over exactly which animal represents each group. Okay. So but in my book I just go with the traditional that the original translator went with to keep things simple. All right. But you have a you have a different viewpoint on exactly what is going on there. And I kind of want to get into what you believe about kind of like the, well, I guess for lack of a better word, the origins of civilization and what you think happened uh, thousands upon thousands of years ago uh, 
did you see that there was a group that came to this planet from who knows where and they uh they settled here and that what is being described in that uh dream vision is actually kind of like a, a history or an, or an outline of what what happened Yes, in many ways it is. Uh, the way I started is as a thought experiment. And I basically use the ancient astronaut theory that everybody's familiar with, uh, with probably Zachariah Stitchum's being the most familiar, <clears throat> excuse me, um, with that 100 to 300,000 years ago, a very advanced race of beings came here, settled set up a colony, started extracting raw resources. There was eventually an uprising, and the solution to the whole problem was the creation of a slave species, which was our early ancestors. And that's basically where I pick up with the dream vision, with the creation story. Okay. And this is where it gets a little crazy, is if you take the dream vision, which is the biblical story, and stretch it out and place it over human evolution for the last 200,000 years as we know it, it fits. That's where it gets wild, that it shifts everything that we think we know. It doesn't really change it, it just shifts it. And that's one of the big secrets of the esoteric religions and the mystery schools as we all know about them and what they're hiding. They're hiding an alternate history. And it's basically the ancient astronaut theory, but it's also tied in with the religion. And the reason it's nobody, everybody has difficulty deciphering it is because they don't understand how to unlock the symbols. Okay. So what uh, what groups do you see? I mean, are we talking like Neanderthal man, Cro-Magnon man? Or are we talking about those those groups of people? Yes, I start with that the first man or the first men that are represented by the bulls in the dream vision are, in fact, Neanderthal. Now, there are a number of experts and people who would probably disagree with that, that and say Neanderthal is not one of our direct relatives, but... The genetic evidence is starting to kind of back that up, or at least we interbred with them yeah. at some point in the past. Yeah. And that my basic argument is, is that's pretty much all that's in the fossil record. We find Neanderthal. And when I look at Neanderthal, I kind of see him built as a perfect little slave to do heavy backbreaking labor if these stories are correct. Yeah, so they're kind of like a big, kind of stocky kind of dude, you know. It's like real, like thick skulls and yeah, they were short, skin. stocky. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, when we look at the anatomy and everything, uh, the average Neanderthal would be more than a match for the biggest, strongest guys of today. They were short, they were strong, they were tough, they were just built like a bull which helps kind of understand some of the symbolism and some of the relationship here and why somebody would say, oh, that could be a bull, because they were built like a bull, just like we, we use the terminology today. Right. Uh, straying from the topic for just, just a minute, um, we had that conversation with the family earlier today about uh, how they've recovered some genes from the Neanderthal to try to 
reproduce that in a, in a human clone. Did you yeah, ever read yeah, anything about I that? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that that would yeah. be cool to. There's there's a lot of genetic uh, proof that we actually that Neanderthals and uh, modern humans interbred. Yeah. Yeah, and with even some unknown species too. Yeah. In fact, yeah, I would heard that as well. Just saw one or an article very recently talking about how there would they believe they found a evidence of a another unknown hominid that's in our genome somewhere. Yeah. How how does like in the Cro-Magnon man fits in as well there as one of the animals and also modern humans as well. Okay. Within the Dream Vision, there's basically three primary characters, starting with the bulls, which are the first men. The second are the sheep. These bulls are eventually transformed into the sheep, and these are Cro-Manglin men. And then the sheep are eventually changed into lambs, which would be us, modern humans. And that gives you a generic timeline to start looking at, to see if any of this information could be correct, that we should be looking back tens of thousands of years instead of just a couple of thousand years to see if any, any, if, if there's any evidence to back any of it up. You, you also look in the book about um, some star positions as well. Uh, like you have a, there's a, you talk about a program that you had uh, on your computer that you could go back and look at ancient kind of like star configurations, and you found some very interesting things. Can you share that? I used to have that too. Oh yes, uh, the astronomical software is the the version I originally used was a freeware version off the internet, um, but there are dozens and dozens of products out on the market now. What these programs do is is they allow you to look at the night sky either in the future or in the past over thousands of years. Now, most everybody's familiar with the idea of precession, of how the Earth tilts as time goes by. It's, it's very popular. But one of the things I noticed as being an amateur astronomer was is that everybody seems to leave out the phenomenon known as proper motion. And proper motion is the fact that the stars are all moving independent of Earth in our solar system. Some are moving with us, some are moving away, some are moving faster, slower, just moving in all kinds of directions. So when you go back in time or even into the future, the night sky is going to change. And the farther you go, the more it'll change. If you were to go back 2,000 years, the average person probably would not see any difference in the night sky. If you went back 5,000 years, you'd start noticing things like Cirrus wouldn't be in the same place where it is today. In fact, it would be much lower in the sky. Uh, you would notice some constellations look a little bit different. And this effect amplifies as you go farther and farther back in time. And this always kind of blows my mind that this people always forget about this, is because we can measure this movement and we can use it as a clock. And by using this program and looking back at proper motion and looking at the stars, I was looking at the Orion Taurus section of the night sky, and when I hit around 175,000 BC, I noticed that the three brightest stars lined up and made a perfect 
pyramid shape, a perfect triangle. That uh-huh. with the equipment that I have, and granted it was all freeware programs, realize that this shape matched the Great Pyramid in Giza. In fact, what blew my mind was it came up with the same angle of 52 degrees. Huh. Okay. Well, that's and that's when I thought I knew I had something. Now, and I, I say even in my book, those dates go really far back, and there's a lot of room for error. But the big key was is it was the idea of realizing that these monuments and these artifacts could be recording proper motion over long periods of time. The big breakthrough, I would say, would be when I get into the ancient cylinder seals, which most people are familiar with from Zachariah Stitchum again, too, and that they record the Pleiades group of stars over time, different numbers, different orientations, and once you get enough of them together, you can actually see the movement of the stars over time, and then that's kind of the big breakthrough that these cylinder seals are actually recording the movements of the Pleiades cluster over probably a 30,000-year period of time. See, I thought that was really interesting because, you you know, Sitchin would say that that was the planets of the solar system. But uh, you throw in there that that's actually looking at the looking at the Pleiades and not not the solar system. Correct. And to and me, in a way, that made more sense. Yeah, and, and that that's that was extremely inter- extremely fascinating to me. That you know, what's what's the significance of the Pleiades? The biggest thing is, I think the biggest significance is that they were being used as a clock. They were okay. being used to record for the people when these events happened. And that's one of the big things about this too, is is that people, we've all been taught that this history was all crammed up and it was just one event after the other. The dream vision in the esoteric says, no, these events took place over thousands of years. They were very slow events. Uh, What we think were maybe only a couple hundred years, they lean more to that might have been thousands and thousands of years in between right. some of the stories we have. Right. Didn't didn't we talk to someone a guest one time who also looked at the same Sumerian text that uh, Zitchin looked at to Well that would be Dr. Heiser. Okay. Yeah. I knew we I knew yeah. I remember someone talking about yeah, he's that. He's not a big fan of Sitchin. Um <laughs> uh, well I, I, when you looked at the pyramid uh, configuration of those stars, how far back was that? Around 175,000 years. That's a long time. That's a really long time. Uh, when I've done, I've done more recent calculations, kind of doing things by hand to get a little bit more accurate. That date actually comes a lot closer, probably closer to probably 125 to 150,000 years ago but still far beyond what anybody else has ever proposed as far as I know. Yeah. Now, do you think that the pyramid was actually, the Great Pyramid was actually built then, or was it built later in a way to commemorate that time period? Actually, I think it was built then. It was built to commemorate. And then also going, if Stitchin's idea was correct, that we were slaves at that time, and when this being came, this 
he basically freed us. And then a little common sense and logic takes over that you have a big, huge slave population. You have to keep these people busy. So I go with the idea, and it, to me it just makes sense that the pyramid was a project to keep the newly freed slaves busy and to commemorate and allow them to establish a whole new society. That there's a whole shift from everything that was that came before. So what is the chronology here? Uh, how far back are we saying that all, this, all of this started? I would go to around 200,000 to 225,000 BC for the creation of man, which fits with roughly with Neanderthal. Yeah. The fall or the angels coming or the fall of Lucifer, because that's what I use in there is I, I keep it in the Judeo-Christian context. The fall of Lucifer and his angels <clears throat> at around 150 to 175,000 B.C., the flood that's recorded on almost every culture on the planet is approximately 72,000 B.C. and coincides with the Toba super eruption that we know about and where we know humanity bottlenecked genetically. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Then the creation of Cro-Manglin man, which fits in for the dream vision and the biblical story, which would be the creation of uh, Jacob would be around 40,000 B.C. when we see Cro-Manglin Man show up. I estimate that the event of the Exodus is around 32,000 B.C., and that the rest of the events after the Exodus basically go up to 10,900 B.C., where there is a massive destruction. Yeah, the, the, the date of 10,900 or 10,500 is very interesting. Uh, we had on Laird Scranton a few shows ago, uh, about a, uh, almost a couple of months ago now, about a month or so ago, and he talks about a site in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe, which dates roughly from that same time period. Yes. That, I theorize, and this is basically a guess, is that since the destruction happens, that that's actually the destruction that's spoken about in the book of Revelations. And that's where it kind of gets a little bit wild and people yeah. start having a little trouble following to go, how do we get to that point from where we were at? Right. But that... We all know that there was something catastrophic that happened on this planet approximately 10,900 B.C. We, yeah. And this generates the Younger Dryas era. The big question has always been the mechanism. Was it an impact? Was it volcanoes? Was it something else? I go with the stories and going through the esoteric belief system. They believe they know what happened. And what happened was... A great ship. The ship that these beings originally came here with was a huge ship in low Earth orbit. And we have massive descriptions of this. In fact, I put a little up on my blog not too long ago, kind of giving a description of this ship. This is the heaven. This is 
the place where the dead go. This is the home of the gods. Uh, all the ancient stories talk about this thing. And we even have it today in our symbolism represented as an eyeball. So when you see the eyeball above the pyramid, what that is representing is not really, the, well, it does represent the all-seeing eye of God, as we were traditionally told, but it also represents the ship, the home of the gods, the heaven. And that is what the esoterics believe ended up crashing into Earth. And that's where this is different than most other people thinking about for ancient astronauts is with this idea, they never left. They're stuck here. They're still here because they blew everything up. Right. Right. And so you kind of draw some parallels there with Quetzalcoatl and some of the other, like, uh, these beings that were on kind of like a, a civilizing mission as well. Very could be. I lean toward, and I kind of leave that open in the book, but I lean toward the idea that these beings may not be aliens. In yeah. fact, I, I'm more open to the idea that they're originally from here. They originally evolved and developed here on Earth and then left. And the esoteric kind of hints along those ways. And for my mind, and for me personally, I just think it makes the most sense that they would be, you know, and that's how you get around the genetic problems. That's how you get around so many other problems because this is home to them. Yeah, like at a certain point, a civilization rose and then left and then came back. Is that kind of how you're looking at it? Basically, and this idea is actually nothing new. It's 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 very heavily in in science fiction, and that's one of the little things too that once you start understanding this, you realize that some of the science fiction and some of the media and things that were were shown on a regular basis are actually produced by esoterics trying to introduce you to some ideas. Yeah. And one of these ideas is that these beings originally developed here 30, 40 million years ago. They left. They, they became advanced. They left Earth. They eventually abandoned Earth because they built some big, huge civilization throughout the galaxy. And then the idea basically floats around that around one to five million years ago, something catastrophic happened. And this civilization was wiped out in a very short amount of time with only a few handfuls of survivors. And that these survivors took their existing technology, loaded what they could on these ships and left. And that around 250,000 years ago, guess who showed back up here? Home at Earth. It kind of sounds like the plot of uh, Battlestar Galactica, like the new Battlestar Galactica. That's, exactly. That's and yeah. there's a whole host of other science fiction books that basically have the same general idea that they're originally from here. And for me, from a, just when you think about it, I think it really makes the most sense, especially when you know you can get on the internet and you probably had uh, I haven't heard all your shows yet, but for anonymous archaeological finds, things that are just out of place. You know, like when they find yeah. footprint, human footprints next to dinosaur tracks, it tells me I, the most logical thing in my mind is that, oh, well, there was another civilization here at some time, you know? Yeah, th those are all very interesting, like just like modern day or supposedly modern day things, like watches 
or something found in like 50 million year old rock and crap like that. You know, you've heard of stuff like that. Like, I've heard of that. I, I'm I'm really yeah. skeptical. I I heard the one about uh, a modern hammer being inside some kind yeah. of like. Yeah, I've heard that one too. Stone. There's a guy, uh, Michael Cremo, uh, who's. Are you familiar with his work? Yes, his he, he's written uh, Forbidden Archaeology. Yeah, well, I mean, he basically looks at it like. Uh, well, I think he's into Eastern philosophy and Eastern religion. And he looks into it as like, he just says that mankind basically is really billions of years old. And there's been so many um, different civilizations that have risen and risen and fallen and risen again. And it's just like a constant cycle, which is pretty much in line with kind of like the, some, some Hindu philosophy as well. Yeah, it is. And I, I do think it has a, some validity to it because we know earth produces intelligent species, you know, just like we were discussing earlier, we're, we're a combination of a bunch of different hominids and yeah. it's actually unusual for only one species of hominid to be running around on the planet. So I think it kind of makes sense that earth has just been churning out intelligent species over the eons and some leave traces, some don't, you know, animals and people go extinct all the time. Yeah, like there was the whole concept of uh, if dinosaurs had survived and there was the uh, paleontologist that made the uh, the speculation of like the, the model of, of like the humanoid dinosaur if, or so like the velociraptors had, had been able to stick around that they may have evolved into a different, like a more advanced uh, form eventually. Yeah, I think all of those are plausible. I mean, they're all within the realm of possibilities for science and evolution and genetics. Yeah. Uh, the big question is, though, is, has somebody been messing with them? <laughs> right. Yeah, that is the big question. I want to talk about these different groups that you talk about, uh, really two groups among these beings, for lack of a better word, because uh, I, I hesitate as well to call them aliens. I have my own idea of where they come from, what they are, but... Uh, you, these there's two different groups and you label these the main group and the fallen group. And what do you kind of mean by those two terms? Well, this is one central group, this central group of beings and going off the ancient stories and within the dream vision and the traditions is it breaks into two distinct factions and the Judeo Christian tradition one faction comes down and is known to us as the lord and jesus and his angels and all of that the other is usually typically viewed as lucifer or satan and, and his demons so to help keep this easy and I, I tried very hard to keep out of the religious aspect or the theological aspects for this. So I decided to just break them into two groups. The main group typically represents the Lord and the angels and the fallen group represents the fallen angels. And it was just to keep it easy and simple and broken apart. It's just easier to deal with it that way. Uh, because once you start talking angels, demons, watchers, things like that, people have so many different preconceptions and they start interjecting their own ideas and beliefs and it gets into a big mess. <laughs> right, right. So what was this fallen group? And, and kind of equate that a little bit with the whole story from Genesis 6, right? The uh, the sons of God, all the the 
the uh, daughters of men and and produce the Nephilim with them. And uh, what do you mean by the kind of like the fallen group? I mean, we're talking about uh, we're talking about, I guess, Lucifer here, for lack of a better term. Yes. Uh, traditionally, though, Lucifer is more of a modern term. Well, actually, Lucifer is a Latin term for morning star. Yeah. Um, right. Traditionally. And within the esoteric, he's usually viewed as the light bearer, with the light representing knowledge, knowledge of the gods. He brought the light to us. Uh, And I kept with within the Judeo-Christian tradition with the idea that and with Enoch in the book of Enoch of talking that this was the star that fell from heaven. They were the ones that fell from grace. They committed the sin of mingling and mating with man. Right. And that's where, too, this gets interesting, too, going back, thinking that these beings may have originally been from Earth, is because these ancient stories tell us that they had sexual relations with human women, and nine months later they had a half-god, half-human baby. And there doesn't seem to be anything to indicate, like there was technology or magic or anything that would imply something else at work here. And that's one of those things to go, well, how do you get around that problem? Well, if they're from here, they may be able to genetically be able to breed with us. Yeah. Yeah. There's been some speculation, I think, in some other fields that there may have been some kind of genetic manipulation uh, and that possibly, well, some genetic manipulation with other animals. So some of our ancient mythologies like about satyrs and centaurs and these kind of creatures, they may have some basis in fact that these might have been actual creatures that were produced. Yeah, whoever made it screwed up a few times. Yeah. Course, make sphinxes and, and satyrs and imps and <laughs> <laughs> right fairies. I don't know. <laughs> Dwarves. Yeah. Well, yeah, the stories have a large variety. And it really makes you wonder for all these. And, and then you see the carvings, and they seem to be representing something real. So what did this fallen group bring to mankind? Basically the knowledge of freedom and the knowledge of the gods that we traditionally view as and they brought us the information of civilization and reading, writing, the knowledge of good and evil, of being able to govern ourselves. And that's one of the big pieces within the esoteric and what some of these symbols represent it going kind of back to the pentagram is they believe that that knowledge came directly from these fallen beings from this light bearer and that they're the groups that have preserved this knowledge from that time till now it talks about in the uh, in the book of enoch about the watcher angels that come down and teach mankind various things Yes, and that's basically what I go off of. And if you do go through and read those passages out of the Book of Enoch, you can see that it is basically civilization. They're talking about metallurgy. They're talking about production. They're talking about making compounds and building things. And they also give the impression that none of this was going on beforehand. Yeah. And that's one of the things, too, where the representation of the light comes from, is that they were, he brought light, he brought us out of the darkness of ignorance, out of the darkness of slavery. 
And that's one of the reasons why the esoterics focus so hard on this, because to them, it is one of the pivotal events in human history. This is actually where our history starts, because prior to that, we were nothing more than slaves and had no control over our destiny. What about stories like in the uh, the Garden of Eden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, does that fit in uh, somewhere to, to, to all this? Yes, it does. I don't go into it directly, but one of the big features and one of the hidden parts is we all hear legends and are familiar with the story of a Tower of Babel. Yeah. And this is one of the big secrets within the esoteric and one of the big secrets within the cylinder seals and within the dream vision is these towers there was more than one tower that there were multiple towers built right and these towers were the towers that the gods came and stood upon in the book of enoch since it ties so directly into the biblical tradition, the tower he's talking about is actually the temple and citadel of King Solomon as spoken in the Bible. And most people have a misconception of this building. and They have a modern viewpoint that it's just this building. It looks like a temple. The if you go back and you actually go through the Bible, and this is where the Masons actually become very handy in their belief because they've actually done this. And you discover that actually this building had about a 280-foot tower on the front end of it. And this was the tower that the Lord came upon. And when we've got unbelievable descriptions in the Bible talking of this, and it's not right. until you have the dream vision and understanding the connection to the cylinder seals that you can connect them all together and realize that there's more than one tower and that this was a process that was going on. Well, what is the connection to the cylinder seals there? What is kind of the story uh, that it's trying to tell about, they're trying to tell about the tower? The biggest thing about that, and this was, I found this totally by accident, was it appears that the dream vision of Enoch is the story that is told on the ancient cylinder seals. It has the same symbolism. It has similar animals. And it's only, like I said before, it's only when you get enough of them together to like understand that the Pleiades are recording the movement of the stars over time to understand that the cylinder cells are telling the dream vision. And that's where it gets really wild because the cylinder seals have been tied into other mythologies, other traditions, all across the Middle East. Yeah. And they've never basically been tied into the biblical tradition. Through the dream vision of Enoch and understanding the connections through the symbols, you can see how they all connect together. And that's one of the big things that has been missed or possibly kept secret by the esoterics themselves. And I have to say that because I refer back to a rumor that popped up after the last Gulf War in Baghdad and the Baghdad Museum that a large number of cylinder seals and artifacts disappeared with a number of them supposedly going into private hands and being destroyed. Whether or not that's true, unknown, but there was a lot of artifacts that disappeared. 
I was actually reading that in a book today. Actually, it's interesting that you that you mentioned that because I was actually reading about some of the artifacts and such that disappeared there in Iraq yeah. in 2003. It's hard to rewrite history whenever you've got all this proof that's, uh, or or could be you know later completely deciphered and be proof against what uh, what uh, the the new the new world order. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't I don't want to say that, but man, but that uh, is true. It, I, I do think that is true. Um, because there, there has been more than once in history where information has been destroyed, arch- archaeological sites are blown up, kind of like what's going on with ISIS now in the Middle East. You're hearing about them destroying these archaeological sites and stuff. Yeah. The first thing that goes through my mind is why. Right. Why are yeah. they destroying them? What are they hiding? What do, you, what do they not want anybody else to see? Well, the the common excuse is just that Muslims hate uh, idolatry. No, I know many Arabs and Muslims. I've met many over the years. They take great pride in their history, just like we do. Did you have a question? You want? Uh, I was just gonna say, in in Dragon Ball Z, there's like a Tower of Babel. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Luke. (laughs) It's awesome, man. I mean, come on. This, this no, actually, that's Japan. an important point to show that towers yeah. are shown everywhere. They're even in right. video games. And All over popular culture. They're there. Yeah, I just thought it was odd that this guy's Japanese and he's like from a completely different like mindset as yeah. far as because uh, yeah. the Tower of Babel's to do with Christianity and right, stuff, a Western know. mindset mostly. Yeah. yeah, but the Japanese still have tower stories themselves. That's one of the other little tidbit is every ancient culture appears to have some story about a tower just like the flood what was the significance of these towers what do you think that they represented they were part of the political structure that was going on i would argue that they were being used by these beings to control our ancestors and that's the other thing too that kind of going through the esoteric you discover that there's a different idea too about these beings. It's tradition. A lot of people think that our ancestors were just too primitive and interpreted these guys as gods. In the esoteric, they present a little different idea that these guys were kind of buttheads and presented themselves this way. Yeah. And that they were just using it as an easy way to exploit a population. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense to me. Uh, do, now, does the esoteric tradition disagree with that? No, not really. Okay, so they would say. So, do they see uh, these as gods? It varies, and that's kind of should probably clear this up a little bit. When I talk about the esoteric, the esoteric, I, I try to talk about it in the most generic terms, much like when you say Christianity. Yeah. Um, it encompasses everything. And when I try to get a little specific and stuff, like when I say talking about the Masons, the Masons are the biggest, they're the most well known, but they're not the only ones. They're not the oldest. There are other groups that have the same belief systems, but do not agree with them, just right. like Christianity. Right. So there will be some that do. There are some that view these beings as gods. There's some that view them as beings just like you and I. And then there's others that basically are kind of like everybody else, kind of not quite sure what they are. 
outside of that, they're really more advanced than we are. Well, it seems to me that there is a kind of a similarity between this, you know, the concept of Lucifer and like the story of Prometheus, the giving of fire to mankind. And it seems to me like a lot of these esoteric um, groups that in some ways, for lack of a better word, are Luciferian in nature. In other words, they look at that event as being the most important event in human history. Pretty much. That, I think, would be a very safe description of it. But the vast majority of my I would make the argument that the vast majority of them are not devil worshippers. They're not Satan worshippers, as in the what we've all been taught by the Catholic Church. And I'm going to pick on the church there for that, because they, they have really distorted the traditions and made everybody think they're evil or occultic and they've attached all these labels to them. And there are fringe groups out there that do that. But as a whole, the esoterics are not that way. They're more about knowledge. They're more about understanding. And in fact, they're kind of, well, I always use the example, very American. Uh, most the American ideals we have come from the esoterics and Masonic, the ideas of liberty and freedom and equality and rule of law. These were actually all born within the lodges and salons two, three, four hundred years ago and eventually put to practice here in the States. And so that kind of gives you a little different viewpoint. They don't go and chop up animals and stuff like that. It's more about, knowledge. It, uh, in fact, uh, it has its roots in hermetic thought, which most people usually think of alchemy and wizards and things like that. But that is where our modern science comes from, that type of thinking. Do you want something to say, Blake? Um, but you know anything about, like, I was looking at a, a page one time that was talking about all the local groups, and one of them was something like the the black dragons or something like that, or the, the something dragons around here. Never heard there, of it. <laughs> there was a, there was a, a lodge or whatever you want to call it, a meeting place for them in Mount Juliet. And they were called like some, something oh, really? dragon, just something dragons. Well, look it up. Okay. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that one, but there are yeah. numerous ones. In fact, uh, right. one little interesting history thing here. I'm living here in Montana. Um, back in the 1930s, in certain areas of Montana, in fact, I know in Butte, Montana, there was at one time over 600 secret societies and groups here in the 1930s. Wow! And that was commonplace. Yeah, I mean, they're I mean, they're they're all over the place, really. Right. You know? uh, and we still have fragments of them. When you see the Kiwanis Club, when you see the the Elks, you see the Lions Club and everything. These are all the leftovers of all these secret societies and groups that our grandparents and great-grandparents all hung out at. Yeah. I, I like how in the book that you describe, uh, not necessarily as this like one big vast conspiracy, but this idea of the esoteric religion in and of itself, because that's something that I've often thought of myself is that, this really is another religion. It is. That's really, that's really all it is. It is. And I've been trying to figure out a good way to kind of group it together to keep it easy for people to understand. The bulk of the esoteric 
is the mystery religions that Christianity, the Catholic Church, destroyed or drove underground 1,500 years ago. Yeah. That's basically who these groups are. They were driven underground. They were the competition. That's why so many of their beliefs are, well, you hear the term all the time. They're called Gnostic. And what's the big problem with Gnostic thought with uh, the Christian churches? You don't need the church. You don't need a priest. You can have a personal relationship. And that's kind of like their whole stick. (laughs) So that's one of the basic little things of where people get messed up that the esoterics aren't evil or anything. They just got a little different viewpoint. These are the guys that were competing with Christianity 1,500 years ago. Right. And, and, you know, Gnosticism, I mean, Gnosis is Greek for for the word knowledge. You know, I, I think one of the, the big problems and the big split really was this whole idea that there was this special knowledge that Jesus came down and, and gave only to an elect few. So that didn't really work in the confines of a church where salvation was for everybody. Uh, and there was also so many different ideas that the Gnostics took some of the stories from the Bible and looked at them in different ways, such as like the Garden of Eden story. They saw basically the serpent as the good guy. And that's why I kind of asked you about the Lucifer, uh, that that aspect of it. That, uh, he, he was actually seen as the good guy freeing mankind from their from their chains and their bondage yeah and i've been slowly trying to go through that a little bit on my blog if anybody's interested to kind of show that within the dream vision and within the esoteric when you get more of the story it's really kind of embarrassing for uh i'll say just christianity because in there's many aspects where the good guy is not so good and the bad guy isn't so bad the lines become really blurred. It's not black and white. It's more like real life <laughs> where there's a lot of gray and there's other things going on. Uh, and we've been, and, and it's well known that over the last 1500 years that the biblical text has been edited. Books have been removed. The book of Enoch is a perfect example of a book that was removed. And this was all done basically to, promote one particular viewpoint. Yeah. It, you know, the, these two groups that you mentioned, uh, they seem to, uh, it seems to be like the fallen group takes over for a while, then the main group comes back and there's a war. And that's where these towers come in, come into the, into the story as well. You also got some interesting ideas about the, uh, the nature of the, it, what the, the beasts in the Bible, it's called the Leviathan and the behemoth. You know, what, what's kind of like your viewpoint on, on those and, and exactly what happened between these two groups and in this warfare. In this war, when the war eventually starts, in fact, we have part of this in the Bible. Uh, when at the end of Chronicles and within the dream vision, it tells you that the Lord calls a number of messengers and he sends them to the people to help turn them from their wayward ways. And they are mocked. They are murdered. They are killed. And that's basically where the Bible ends with that part of the story. And then the destruction of the first temple and the captivity happens. Within the dream vision, you're told that one of these messengers 
survives. He escapes. And just as he's about to be killed, he's saved. He's saved by the Lord himself. And this is a little tie-in, and this is the beginning of this war. And it's kind of hard to get into here. It's a major part within the book. This is the beginning of where a lot of the symbolism gets its meaning. Because the beginning of this war is where humans, or they basically start fighting back. And this war, I think, starts out the tradition and going off the cylinder seals and common sense kind of tells you that they kind of stalemate. And they need to come up with new technology, new weapons to break the stalemate. And going off the ancient cylinder seals, you can see that they take these towers, which the stories tell us have some type of military capability, and they are put on the back of an animal, which the animal is nondescript and going off the symbolism appears to be some type of transportation system. And this is where it gets hard into understanding. You kind of have to go through everything to understand all the little nuances of the symbolism but that the weapon capabilities were put on the back of machines and they use these machines to fight the wars and our ancestors interpreted these machines as the monsters. And these guys too appear to, like I said, presenting themselves as gods. So they kind of spruced up this machinery. I think of a good way to put it is we all are familiar with the, the old truckosaurus. They used to have at the car shows, eating cars and blowing fire. <laughs> right. And that's basically what it is. And if the interpretation is correct, that this is Cro-Manglin man, why wouldn't he interpret that as a giant monster? He would never know that that was a piece of machinery because yeah. he wouldn't be able to comprehend it. He wouldn't be able to comprehend the technology. I don't even think you could tell him what it was. He'd never understand it. He would always view it as a machine. And this is kind of the idea that's been put forward in the ancient astronaut theory, too, that our ancestors were seeing this technology and describing it the the only way they knew how. And they interpreted these great machines, these great war machines, as the monsters that are recorded in the stories. And once you start going through the stories and getting the descriptions that most people don't read with, I use Leviathan as a perfect example within the book of Job because he gives a description of this thing and it is clearly something metal. It's clearly a machine. And that's kind of the breakthrough is understanding the symbolism on how it connects together into the story. And that these gods, these beings, whatever you want to call them, were fighting a war with these great big machines back and forth. This war eventually leads to the great destruction of everything. Um, But the big problem with it all is, is there's huge chunks of of information missing. The esoterics don't have it. Nobody seems to know exactly what happened. Luke would agree with you that Leviathan's pretty metal. Yeah. If, uh, yeah, it, uh, is that, is that them right there? No. no. Uh, it, if it's not already a band, it has to be a band title. <laughs> I haven't gotten that far on my phone yet, but, uh, I'm getting, I mean, right now I'm just reading the Wikipedia, uh, definition of, cause I have no clue. I didn't read the Bible. All the time. <laughs> I've, I've heard that before, but yeah. Uh, sorry. I digress there a little bit. Uh, 
but you know, also too, I found it interesting that this war just kind of drags on. It, it seems to go from st- the way that in in your in your theory of all this that it seems to drag on for thousands upon thousands of years, and you have this uh, the the Toba volcano thing was very interesting as well, equating that with the flood. You know, because it has been proven genetically that we go through a bottleneck, uh, humans go through a bottleneck at that time. So there's there's less humans. Uh, I believe that was what seventy thousand years ago, somewhere around approximately. There. Yeah, and it and then also everything kind of lasts up to about like ten thousand five hundred BC. So, it, what eventually happens to these? Do they? So do you believe that they stayed here on this planet and that there was some kind of impact or that causes us to go into an ice age and then eventually the these stories just were forgotten and became myth? In many ways. Um, what I think and I put forward in the ideas is that after this destruction, they go through, they start genetically modifying us into modern humans of today. And then the Younger Dryas sets in, which is a mini ice age. The ice age basically returns for about 15,000 years, or I mean, sorry, about 1,500 years, which would bring us somewhere around 9,500, 9,000 BC, which would fit into Gobi Tepec, which I theorize that that may be some of the first humans, modern humans being placed, that they're dropping these people off. That's why they kind of pop up out of nowhere and they seem to be really super advanced. Then we know that around that time, the Younger Dryas comes to an end and the ice starts melting. And we know too recently that this was, there was some pretty catastrophic flooding events that went on through this. The ocean levels went up to the more modern level they are today. And I think it's very plausible that these beings were stuck here with one group probably locating themselves in Antarctica, being logic dictating that they were just trying to be as far away from the impact site as possible. And I think this also helps, is supported by the stories about Antarctica. There's all these stories about hollow earth, hidden beings, and it could be one of these groups could be located there. So if you had to speculate that you would say that there's possibly these beings are here today. Yes. They never, they couldn't leave because they blew everything up. That's kind of the thing is their capability to leave was destroyed. And why exactly all of this happened is still a big mystery. But we seem to be told some things, getting kind of back to science fiction, that there is a common theme within science fiction, and I use Star Wars as a perfect example. The esoterics seem to be telling us the story that led to the destruction of this thing. And it's always the same, that a small little band of friends that through luck, pluck, and just sheer determination managed to pull off the impossible. Yeah. And they damaged this thing. In the case of Star Wars, they blow up the the, uh, Death Star. That's actually a representation of this ship that eventually impacted. 
and that's where it gets a little interesting in kind of the politics of what could have happened. That one group attacked this ship. They damaged it. It slowly fell out of orbit. They knew it was going to impact the Earth. They knew it was going to create all kinds of chaos and havoc. And this actually puts in motion everything else they do to save themselves and to save us for some reason, a part of us. And then, you actually, oh, sorry. And then once the ice started melting, they basically got cut off from us. And I also suspect that when you go through the ancient stories, most people are familiar that a number of native tribes in the Americas have a story of a man, very powerful white man that comes after the last flooding. Uh, uh, Graham Hancock speaks of him. Veneroco is his, usually is the name he goes by. And he's described as this tall, white, bearded, blue-eyed man that was very powerful. And there's all these different stories associated with him. And I think this could actually be one of the survivors from this group, one of these groups. And kind of gives you an idea why they may be hiding. They changed us in the ancient, and those stories tell us that the Indians didn't view him as a god. They only viewed him as a great and powerful man. Right. And that's kind of where the changes. We were genetically changed a little bit to adapt to the world after this impact happened. And in the process, we became a little smarter and we do not view them or would not recognize them as gods anymore. You have an actual site that you believe where this impact might have taken place. Yes which is basically just a little bit south of Anchorage, Alaska. There is a, because the idea is, because I was thinking about it, that if it was an impact and all the evidence supports that there, if there was an impact event, it was centered somewhere in the North American continent. And I was thinking that if it was a big, huge ship, it would make a crater, even if it blew up in the air, it should make a crater, and that this crater should have an unbelievable metal content. And just south of Anchorage, there is a crater that dates from about the right time that has an unbelievable high metal concentration. It releases a mind-boggling amount of energy, so much energy that it actually cracked the bedrock underneath the crater Jeez. and they've been trying ever since they found it in 1972 to figure out exactly what created this crater because there's enough metal there to indicate that the object had to be at least 1900 feet or 600 meters across of a solid chunk of metal that should not have blown up in the atmosphere it should have hit the earth it would have created a humongous crater released about 26,000 megatons of force. So this crater is an ideal candidate to fits for time, for metal, for impact, for the site, everything. What's the name of the crater? I cannot pronounce that. It is an Eskimo word. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Or Inuit word, I guess, is would be the proper some uh, some weird Eskimo clicks, <laughs> yeah. kind, kind of like the Bushmen. Yeah, they don't they don't click. <laughs> they seem like they would, <laughs> and, and grunts. 
they'll, they'll spear you with a walrus spear. They're like, <laughs> they'll, they'll drop a tulpa in the water to come hunt me down. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, we've got Tom here, uh, you know, kind of like how this is playing out today with the secret societies. Uh, you know, do you have the whole idea of, you know, the, the new Atlantis, Sir Francis Bacon? Uh, and a lot of what you're describing could be, you know, could be equivalent to an Atlantis, basically, an ancient, a really ancient and really advanced civilization. You know, how is this played out now with like this kind of like this concept of the New World Order? Is is the goal of some of these secret societies to bring the civilization back? Yes, I would argue that. Um that seems to be one of their primary goals. There appears to be a number of groups that claim to be in contact with these beings, and their eventual goal is to have them to have their gods walk upon earth once again. Yeah. And that's kind of for me personally kind of freaks me out. <laughs> right. I, I don't I mean, even if these guys are just total crazy and it's just a crazy idea that it's it's dangerous i think because they're wanting to trash the whole system so they can worship these guys what do you mean by that um the idea behind it is much like the old traditions of when the nephilim walked the earth that the ones who followed and worship them were treated like kings and the ones that opposed them were hunted down. Yeah. So that's kind of the idea. It's a real kind of masters and slaves kind of idea, which kind of fits back into the new world order. And my big point in all this is that this is basically the religion of the new world order. This is like you were saying earlier, it's not so much a conspiracy. It's a religion. It's an old religion very entrenched and you had brought up Sir Francis Bacon what makes him so important for New Atlantis and all of that is the esoterics and even the Masons will tell you directly in their writings what makes him so important is he happened to be the guy that was a member of a number of different groups of these esoteric groups the Royal Society the Rusticrucians and what eventually became Freemasonry those were the three primary groups he was in, and he made all them aware of each other. He was the one that brought them all together. That's why he's so important. And then soon after that, he produced his work, The New Atlantis, which has been raising questions ever since. But all that comes directly from the esoteric. Do, do you think that there's something to this whole idea of population control? And things like chemtrails and, and uh, that they're trying to design the earth into a certain back into a certain way. Something's going on. There is clearly geoengineering going on. Um, since I live up here in Montana, since March or actually it was May of 2011, just two months after the Japanese earthquake and almost nonstop to this day. We have almost daily geoengineering going on here. Every day I see dozens and dozens and dozens of planes crisscrossing, laying axes, making clouds, creating rain. And I have to wonder why it's being done. Um, 
I would not be surprised one bit that there is a depopulation going on. I mean, it's pretty obvious when you read what all the elites have been saying for the last 60 years. I mean, it's not like they're hiding it. And I don't know if the geoengineering, the chemtrails are tied into that or if there's something else. I speculate that there might be something else going on with them and that they're being actually used as a weapon, that there's a kind of a covert war going on behind the scenes using weapons technology for weather control, things that the average person doesn't really believe exist. And they've been using these things and somebody's fighting somebody. (laughs) Uh, What exactly they're doing and why I'm still open to what they're doing. You got any insight on that, Luke? Um, I, one of your things is food stuff, so yeah, what's going into the food? My, my biggest belief on that right now, what, what I'm on to is I, I think that it's uh, that, that they're kind of terraforming um, because we've we've damaged the environment and stuff a bit, and I think that uh, it's a it's a process of adjusting our weather so that we're we're not all like I, I don't know <laughs> that's the that's the best yeah. I've got right now is that, is that they're adjusting the weather to, to be uh, more normal than what it would normally be. Do you see the hand of these secret societies and some of these uh, into wars and into conflicts and, you know, what's kind of like the ultimate goal maybe there? Uh, yeah, the secret societies have always had their hands in wars. Uh so is the churches and so is government. So that's kind of something that's not yeah. new. Um, I think they use them to gain power. I think that argument can be made. And I think there's enough evidence to support that they create crises to get people on edge and then come rushing in and save the day. And in the process, you always have to people always end up having to give something up. Right. And, you know, and the, the Internet's full of different sites and stuff providing better information on how exactly these psychological operations are used. It's, they're used in marketing. They're, you know, we're, we're under a constant bombardment of this stuff. I mean, you just turn it on the TV and you get it. <laughs> yeah, I found it fascinating. You describe in the book about a, a book that you read. Uh, I can't remember the name of the book, but the author was R.D. Lang. Oh, Politics of Experience. Yeah. I found that interesting in some of his, uh, that uh, this vision that he has supposedly had on LSD, that uh, you you look at that, it's very similar in a way to the dream vision of Enoch. Yes, and the other key point in that book, and I recommend everybody to go out and read The Politics of Experience, it is one of the most interesting books and hard books you'll ever have. It's actually based off a set of lectures that he gave, so it's not the easiest read. But he gives you the psychological explanation of what they are doing. And he kind of, it's kind of late 60s, early 70s kind of terminology and stuff where when he wrote it, but basically what he focuses on is that there are two parts to every human being. You have an inner part, which we all are all familiar with. That's who makes up you. And then there's the outer part, which is the rest of the world we deal with. And he makes the argument that we don't really believe the outer world unless we see it. 
and that you can use that tad bit of knowledge to destroy people's experience in order to control them. And mm. once you start reading through the book and basically looking at media, government, business for the last 40 years, you'll see this argument. You'll see this idea being applied. And what really got me the most in this is he gives the exact same definition or description of the word is that Bill Clinton used in his little <laughs> scandal back in the 90s. In fact, I would, I, I think Bill Clinton actually took that argument directly out of that book. Yeah, I remember that. Like, well, that depends on what the meaning of is is. It's like, mm -hmm. what are you even talking about? Yeah. <laughs> if you want an explanation of that argument and why he used it and where he got it from, you need to read The Politics of Experience by R.G. Lang. It'll blow your mind. Well, while I've got you here, I wanted to talk a little bit about, do you have any opinion of what happened in Charleston uh, last week? You know, I'm still kind of going over that. Uh, right now, I lean toward the fact that I think it's a false flag. Okay. And the reason being is the first words out of everybody's mouth is not what a tragedy or for the victims or the family. It was about gun control. It was about politics. It was about race. And everybody and their brothers showed up. It was a copycat of Sandy Hook, which was a copycat of the previous shooting, which was a copycat of the, you know. And I've already seen a little bit off some of the net already starting to light up with uh, people tearing the videos apart, analyzing the pictures. And it doesn't look like the official story is that great. I, I'm still open. I, I, you know, if, if it actually happened and the, these people were murdered, I, my heart and prayers go out to the families and their pain. But I, something else is going on here. I guess what I have a hard time with really is that to me, it just seems, it seems like such a typical thing that has happened so many times before in the past. Like, um, you know, especially during like the sixties, the civil rights, like the bombings in Birmingham and, all those kind of events that took place then it, it, it just seems to me like a typical kind of like white supremacist crime. And, and, and I get it why people would think that it's uh that it is a false flag or that this guy might be a patsy. I mean, if you look at the guy, he just looks like a total freako and he does look like those other nice uh, bowl cut. Yeah. He does look like those other killers, like the supposed killers like Adam Lanza and you know, the, was is it Holmes, the one with the, the the Batman shooter, you know, I, I just I just think this guy gave up to the police like he just wanted to prove a point, and, and I don't know if there's any real like hidden fault, agenda. Any, like hidden agenda in the in, in this one. Now I do see that of course any time that anything of this happens, the whole gun control issue comes back up and keeps coming up and keeps coming up. You know, there's definitely a uh, there's definitely people that want that want to take guns away. You know, that, that definitely but, is there. But people have been shooting each other at him for centuries. Don't you want to see it end? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that's going to be the, the solution to it. <laughs> Any thoughts on that? No, I, 
I live in Montana. I am a big supporter of the Second Amendment and hunting yeah. and everything like that. Um, no, there is something politically going on. And, you know, and I, and I should say, too, that I'm still open that this, you know, this, this guy may just be a total whack job and he just wigged out and, you know, wants, wants his 15 seconds of fame. You know, that happens. But the way everybody jumps on it and turns it into a political yep. circus, that I have a problem with. I think that's wrong. They shouldn't be doing that. It's a dishonor to the people that are injured or hurt or yeah, I agree with you. in pain. It's, it's, it's tacky. And yeah. I really think we should hold our officials to a much higher standard. Right. It is, and it's like not everybody that, that owns a gun and there's people that are responsible that are not going to go out there and kill a whole bunch of people. You know, any time that this happens, somebody's going to come out and always talk about gun control. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it's, cause it's a political hot-button issue. And we're getting and close to election year. <laughs> yep, yep. The campaigns have already started. Well, uh, RJ, I wanted uh, to ask you the time that we got left, you know, where can people get your books? Where can they contact you? Where, th where can they see uh, see your writings? Uh, your best bet for contacting me or seeing stuff would be at my blog at the Forbidden Knowledge at Enoch.blogspot.com. I'm also on social media for Facebook and Twitter under RJ Von Bruning. And to get my book, you it's available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, and tons of other bookstores and retail outlets. Uh, it can also be purchased through the publisher Tate Publishing at tatepublishing.com. Yeah, and it's a very fascinating book, very easy read. Uh, I can't I can't recommend it enough. If you want some good, like just kind of good like speculation that that you can that you support with a whole bunch of evidence that's a perfect book i think for some for people to read thank you most welcome <laughs> <laughs> luke was there anything you wanted to add or uh no you always do this to me <laughs> I'll, I'll put him on the spot all the time rj just put him on the spot yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I was thinking, too, uh, about the whole uh, geoengineering thing. Something that yeah. I forgot to mention is, uh, you know, something that I was thinking about dealing with that was that uh, corporations can be at each other's throats and use that as a technology against each other. Because I mean, it has a lot to do with business because, you know, weather affects business. Yeah. So if these are corporate planes that are going up and dumping aerosol and they could be going uh, head to head. But I don't really see that happening either, because then it would come to act like actually actual uh, gunfire, you know, and planes shooting other planes down and stuff, right? I mean, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Warfare has kind of gotten strange in the last yeah, true fifty or something years. It's, it's all about being underhanded now, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> There's more. Yeah, psychological warfare is also another thing. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Oh, we are constantly under a barrage of psychological operations. Yep, that's a whole other show. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being on, RJ, for Conspiracy Normal. We're going to close this section out, but uh, we'll be right back. Oh, <laughs> 
Thank you, Luke. <laughs> that was just that was just incredible. I feel sufficiently stupid. <laughs> what, a, what a beautiful way to go back from this show. I beatbox the ass. Yeah. <laughs> I, better, I better back up some. People don't like me that loud. Yeah, they like it loud. They don't like me at all. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, Ben, I uh, just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on uh, our our guest. Uh, see what you thought about that uh, about that interview. He was just totally radical. <laughs> totally radical. How bad? Like his worldview? Uh, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like like a Jewish radical. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's not even the right use of that word. You are in a strange mood tonight. <laughs> That's not even the right use of that word, is it? I, don't even know. I have absolutely no idea what that even means. I don't even know what a radical is, really. What is a radical, radical is someone that uh, usually takes on like a extreme political position. Uh, I would say more. In, in yeah, there's his... Jewish. There, I'm right then. There's Jewish radicals. <laughs> well, sure, yeah, there's Jewish radicals. <laughs> See, there's already any Jewish radicals that might be. Out there. <laughs> we didn't say anything bad about them. <laughs> anyway, I. I I thought it was really interesting, man. The, the book is uh, the book is really fascinating. Like I said, I mean, it's a lot of it's a lot of speculation in it, uh, you know. But it's just someone that I see that's trying to explain kind of like the anomalies of the past and and what exactly happened and and how things how things may have occurred. Um, you know, like I said, I, I've always looked at this kind of stuff in a rather different way, as these were, you know what the book of Enoch or what the Bible says that they, these, these beings were basically fallen angels that set themselves up as gods. Yeah. I'm not quite sure, you know, like the time span thing, but it definitely, definitely is interesting. The whole concept yeah, I, of a, I gotta uh, say, I, I agree with in the, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, definitely is interesting. A whole concept of how we have been in the past, uh, possibly like a, a long-term, um, Going back four hundred thousand years. I mean, you just think about how long that is, man. Yeah, and I've never heard of the whole crater deal uh, yeah. beneath uh, what is Anchorage? You said no, I never heard. Of it. Yeah, it's somewhere close to Anchorage. You said, yeah. Um, you know, I thought that was uh, was real interesting as well. And a Death Star crashing—that's an intriguing thought. <laughs> a Death yeah. Star crashing into well, the this whole idea is that this 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 heaven, uh, quote unquote, was. Uh, was was what had uh, crashed into uh, into Alaska. So who's calling you right now? I don't know who's calling me right now. <laughs> All right, well, sorry for that interruption. Uh, but anyway, where were we? <laughs> Dude, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, join us next week. Uh, we're gonna have on uh, Nick Redfern. He's gonna come on. We're uh, for the third time on Conspiracy Normal. We're going to talk about his book about uh, consp- about conspiracies, both both ancient and modern. I've uh, really been getting into a lot of this kind of like ancient uh, ancient civilization stuff lately on the yeah, show, I, which really, is one uh, of my favorite yeah, too. I love it's that. one of my favorite subjects too. It's something that we hadn't really gotten into very much, I think, until like Laird Scranton. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this kind of stuff with uh, Nick Redford, but. I also want to talk to him about the his work on the Roswell slides and pretty much debunking that whole thing and uh, pretty much proving that all what we're looking at is just like a picture of a mummy in a museum. Then after <laughs> that, in July, uh, have a very 
special guest, one that uh, is a good friend of the show, and one that, uh, well, I can have two guests. And one, as I mentioned before, is a very special guest that's been on the show before, and the other one is will be the first time coming on the show. But uh, there is a movie, a documentary that is coming out from Adullam Films about the Georgia Guidestones. Yes, and we are excited. And we are very excited to have these guys come on. And that would be Dr. Future and Chris Pinto. And uh, Dr. Future worked on the movie, uh, did a lot of the research for the film, and Chris Pinto was the one who edited it and filmed it and put it all together. So I'm real excited to have those guys on to talk about it. It's going to be very, very interesting. But uh, that's all for now, folks. If uh, we, you don't have anything else to add, we'll call it a night. Yep. All right, man of many words for Mr. <laughs> L- for Mr. Lucas von Adolf von der Schleisen. L- Lucas Adolf von der Schleisen. <laughs> okay, I'll get it Dude. right. I'll get it right eventually. Someday man. I'm going to be an author <laughs> when I grow up. <laughs> for, for now, I'm just going to go home and lay in my beanbag. There you go, man. <laughs> uh, hopefully, you'll be here to join us next week, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's summertime, dude. I can't make any promises. <laughs> My my, pre- my my presence is very valued. I know, yeah. Luke's, is Luke very, is in high, high demand. Very precious <laughs> with all of my skills. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you all next week on Conspiranormal. Get yourself.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.